I know I've said it before, I don't know that I can say it enough, how much it means to be a part of, I'm grateful for like being a part of the big church, uh, believers all over the world, but I'm really, really grateful to be a part of this church. Uh, when it starts with even the, the greeting and the welcome, when I hear the prayers and when I hear um, when we're led in worship by uh, friends and I know their walk with the Lord, um, it means so, so much to me. And I don't, I don't take it for granted. I hope, I hope you don't either. I mentioned a few weeks ago that so much when, when we're reading the Bible, especially the New Testament, it's like we're reading another person's mail. I think another way of looking at, looking at it is also, it's almost like we get carbon copied on this message. So Paul directs it to, like the church at Corinth is what we're looking at, the book of 1 Corinthians. But it's almost as if he, he knows he's writing for more than just those believers at that particular place. I don't, I don't know if he could have had any idea that he would be writing for people that would be worshiping Jesus 2,000 years later. But his words speak to us. It's God's word speaking to us today, giving us clarity, giving us guidance. And so we've been, we've been looking at what Paul had to say to an imperfect church. Because it is as good of a church as Ogletown is, and I love it, but we're still imperfect. So what, what does God have to say through Paul to an imperfect church? I want us to dig a little bit deeper in that. If you have your Bibles, 1 Corinthians 1 is where we will be today. And uh, Karen Hale's going to come up and read for us. She's going to begin in verse 18 and actually read into chapter 2 because the, the thought kind of continues on for a few verses into chapter 2. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 18 is where she'll begin. Good morning, everyone. Um, 1 Corinthians 1, 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you 
the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Thank you so much, Karen, for reading. I hope you'll keep your Bible open. We'll be going through these verses. I wonder if I were to ask you to divide up the world into categories. I wonder what categories would matter to you. I wonder if you were explaining how the world kind of divides up. I wonder what categories you might use to explain that to children. I wonder if you would say, well, there are poor people and there are rich people. There are people that live in the city people that live in the country. There are people that are educated. There are people that are not educated. There are people that are citizens. There are people that are immigrants. There are people that are connected. There are people who are marginalized. I wonder if you would divide up and say there are people that kind of lean politically to the left and people that lean politically to the right. There are people that are white-collar workers and then there's blue-collar workers. There are people who are married. There are people who are single. There are people who are married. There are people who are divorced. There are people that live in northern Delaware. There are people that live in lower Delaware. I wonder how you would divide up the world. I wonder how you would see categories. I say that because it mattered to Paul how we think of how things are divided up. There was a a group of people at that church in Corinth that Paul first wrote to that were dividing up into like these little tribes, these little sub-identities, subgroups within the church. It was like the church wasn't being unified. It was being divided into like all these splinter groups, still, I guess, meeting together, but really allegiances were like, I- I'm of this person. This is my favorite teacher. This is my favorite teacher. And, and Paul, in this passage, is actually going to put a very, very strong dividing line. And he's going to say the one division, however you, else you want to divide people up, the one division that matters the most is those who are being saved and those who are perishing. That's what verse 18 describes. That division is above all others, those who are being saved and those who are perishing. And there's one significant thing that draws that line between those who are being saved and those who are perishing. I want to dig in today and look at what it is that divides, particularly with some reminders that I think we have from this passage that still are speaking to us today, although this was written almost 2,000 years ago. I think the first reminder that Paul would draw our attention to is that we have to realize that the, the message of the cross is a, a simple but very polarizing message. Do you understand what I mean by polarizing? It kind of pushes things to opposite directions, pushes them to the poles. So if there's uh, one direction here, one direction, not much middle ground. So when Paul is talking in 1 Corinthians 1, he is pushing things to the poles. There's a line, two distinct groups, two distinct things, and the line is perishing and saved. And and what draws that line is the cross or how people respond to the message of the cross. That's why he says in verse 18, for the word of the message of the cross, and by that, just for clarity here, the cross means the death of Jesus on the cross. So his, his death for people. The message of that, the message of Jesus' death for people on the cross is 
folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. To those who are perishing, that, that means much, much more than just those who are kind of having a bad day or having a tough time of it the last few years or decades. It means those who are headed to destruction. So what Paul is saying about the message of the cross is that for some it's going to land as complete folly. For others it's going to be, that's the power of God. So think about it. I invite you to think about it long and hard. Think about what it means that if you were to walk out, let's, let's imagine a very remote place in the world and imagine no clouds in the sky and it's nighttime and you look up into the sky and you see stars after star after star after star. You see hundreds of them with your eye knowing there are thousands of them you don't see with your naked eye. And you think the one who made all those stars, the one who made all of that that I see, became flesh. He came to a planet in the flesh. Not just any planet, the third one from the sun in our solar system. And he did everything right and everything good. But he allowed himself to be executed in a state-sponsored execution. And that death of his means life and forgiveness and peace and hope. And this is so powerful that only God could do this. Only God could make that happen. And those who are perishing say, that is foolishness. That is absurd. I think the most helpful way I've seen it translated, though the word folly or foolishness is, that's nonsense. There's no way. There's no way it could be that way. The message of the cross, we, we've gotten so familiar with the cross. I mean, we can buy necklaces with, with the cross. We can put a cross up in our house. We can, we can even get a Bible that has a cross on the cover. I mean, there's, there's crosses everywhere. I think sometimes we forget the shame and the scandal of the cross. When Paul says this, the message of the scandalous torture device that's humiliating. Nobody went up on a cross except for those that were completely shamed, guilty, condemned, humiliated. That is power to those who are being saved. It's the power of God. But others look at it and say it's nonsense. We, we look at this polarizing message and we notice as we're reading these verses, one thing that just stood out to me is God is the subject of these sentences. God is not passive here. God is the subject of the sentences. As a matter of fact, in verse 19, the very next verse, he says, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. Who's saying that? God's saying that. God says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. God destroys and he he thwarts. So the Corinthians here weren't just really gullible people. And like, yeah, anything would have, they they would have believed anything back then. No, they, they would have been discerning and would have been processing this. This could be nonsense just like you might be in this room today, just like your friends might be hearing a message like Jesus on the cross and going, that that, that can't make sense. It's going to be frustrating. God's going to destroy our wisdom because our wisdom is going to tell us I can do something to contribute to my salvation, if not earn it outright. God's going to frustrate that and thwart that. You'll need something beyond your logic, beyond your power. Paul starts asking questions in verse 20. Notice who he singles out. He says, okay, where where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made 
foolish, the wisdom of the world. When he's calling out the wise, he's saying, okay, where's the, where are the people that think the smartest people in the world, like that, those people that have the highest IQ or even the greatest ability to put it all together? Where are the people that are, are the ones who can write? Where's the scribe, the one who's the expert in writing everything down so that you can understand it? Where is that person? Where is the person who's the debater? So that's not just the, the thinker or the writer, it's the speaker. Where's the one who can make that all seem like, like tight, logical sense? Where is that person? God has made it all foolish. So Paul takes the leading experts of the day. I think we might write it a tad different today. Although we might include like the thought leaders and the speakers and all those who make compelling cases. We, Paul might have written, if you're writing to us today, where, where, is, the, where is the celebrity? Where is the actor who has everybody's attention? Where is the musician that everybody pays attention to what she writes, what, what he writes? Where is the, the athlete that has more followers than they know what to do with? Where is the one who has the advantage, the platform, the social media influence? Where is that per- person? Because for all of their promises, they have nothing to offer in this realm. They're headed in the wrong direction. If I were in class at this time, and Paul is like teaching me this class, I think I'd raise my hand and go, I've got a question. I think it's a fair question. It might be a question you're asking. The question is, well, couldn't you just use this reasoning to justify a lot of nonsense that all Christians say? So a Christian says anything, they go, well, you just don't understand it because you're not wise like I am. You're, you're just filled with nonsense. I have all the wisdom because I'm a Christian. Couldn't you justify a thousand dumb things by just like playing the Jesus card and shutting down conversation? I do think, I do think, yes, you could do that. I don't think that's where this passage is going. I got another question. Does this mean that whenever we hear something that's not from a Christian, so I'm listening to a podcast and I listen to a sociologist or I listen to someone who's talking about relationships or I, I, I'm listening to someone who is kind of pressing in on human motivation and communication skills and, and I know for a fact they're, they make no claim to be a Christian. They're not, they're not citing chapter and verse. They're not going to the Bible. Does that mean they have nothing to teach me? I only learn from those that are you know, committed Christ followers. That's all I'm going to listen to. No, I have no time for anybody else. Can we learn anything about management, about discipline, about relationships? No, no, it's all nonsense. It's all foolishness. No, I, I actually think there's a lot, a lot, a lot of wisdom to be gained in this world, even from people who don't name the name of Jesus. I think we can learn a ton. I think we should. But it, but it does hit some roadblocks, and I think we who follow Jesus ought to at least be aware. When I think of a philosophy, when I think of someone's observations, when I think of someone's principles, when I'm listening to a, a person and she gives some life tips and some ways of processing the universe, a question I'm, I'm going to have to ask, if, if this text means anything, a question I'm going to ask is, does the cross fit into this? Does it, does it take into account the cross, this philosophy, this way of living your life, Does it take into account there's a God who loves and a God who rules and a God who judges? Or is that kind of not not part of putting the world together in this person's mind? Does it take into account that every human being, from the ones we think are the most moral to the ones we think, man, they are so immoral. All of us have sinned. All of us have turned our back on God's love, have separated ourselves from him, have rebelled 
against him are under his judgment? Does it take into account that? Or is it basically the premise is we're all good people and we're just trying to do the best we can every single day? Does it take that into account? Does it take into account that if we believe that God sent his son as a man to take the wrath for us, provide a rescue for us, forgive us freely from our sins, justify us completely, reconcile us to God. Does it take that into account? Does it take it into account that God has done all this through the execution of his son and just what is bloody torture on a cross? It was the height of shame and humiliation and guilty and condemnation, guilt and condemnation. So whatever's captured my attention, I'm listening to yeah, a podcast going down the road. I'm reading a book, finding a lot of help in it. Does it Is it compatible with this message of the cross? Because the moment it begins to deviate from that and tell a different story is the moment I don't have to just close the book or rip the pages out, but I have to be aware, wait a minute, wait a minute, my whole existence is based on a man on the cross, and if it doesn't have time for that, then there are going to be some limits of what I can take away from it. The fact is, every other philosophy that doesn't incorporate the cross is either dodging the question or ignoring the facts of what it's going to take to bring us back to God. We can't do it on our own. Verse 21 says this, for since, because this is the way God's designed the world. In the wisdom of God, the world is not going to know God through wisdom. Hold on to that. Think about that. The the world is not going to know God through just being wise enough to figure this out. No, no, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach the nonsense of, and this is where it'd be nice to have like some quotation marks, the nonsense, because I, I think that that is the way Paul is using the words, the nonsense of what we preach, the nonsense of what we're communicating, that's what's going to save those who believe. You either have, you either put together a world that God reveals it and that's how we know it, or you put together a world in which we, we discover we, we figure out how things work, and then we slap a label on it and say, that's what the truth is. Either are going to go the route of God communicating and revealing himself, or you're going to go the route of, yeah, I'm just kind of on my own, and what makes sense to me is the way the world works. And yet this says God saves through the message we preach, because when you throw the cross into the mix there, no one, no one is going to go, I bet I know what would save the world. If there was God who came in the flesh and was born kind of in the the backwaters of Palestine during the Roman Empire, I bet that would do it, especially if he went to a cross. I think that would do it. No one gets there. No one gets there. It's only through God revealing himself. It's almost as if we, if Paul were talking today, he would say, God's not going to be found through research at a lab at Johns Hopkins, as amazing as the research they do is. You're not going to find him at some some high-powered lab. The, The understanding of the way of salvation isn't going to come through a philosophy class at Harvard or Stanford. That's not where it's going to come. God's going to have to reveal himself. And all of this becomes very frustrating to the world. In verse 22, it says, the world just, that's so frustrating because Jews demand signs, it says, and the Greeks or the Gentiles seek wisdom. 
No, no. We want to say, God, that, that's not how it should work. The way it should work is we ought to see something powerful or we should see something that is just so compelling logic-wise. It's like this, then this, then this, then this, and oh, okay, I should have seen it all along. But God's not here to do a party trick through Jesus. God's not going to lead us to him through a bunch of hyphenated words that we figure out. And our, our, our brain power is such that, oh, yeah, I, I've reached this level of IQ, therefore I'm a Christian. It doesn't work that way. Simply, we preach Christ crucified. And that has to hit us. When someone writes a biography, and I've read a lot of biographies, often when they deal with a, especially if it's a favorable biography, when they deal with something shameful in the person's life, they either barely cover it, or they make it kind of the low point of the story of which everything else was atoning or rising above that shameful, humiliating, disgusting thing that they did, that they, they had to work their whole life to kind of bounce back from. But interesting, this shameful, most humiliating thing in all of Christianity, we actually put right there at the center. We say, we're not hiding it anywhere. God came in the flesh and we crucified him. God came to show his love, and we rebelled against it. We looked on him and said, he's done stuff wrong. This is the way we are in our natural state. I I love the way someone wrote it. The story behind Jesus' death discloses that he was rejected by the very people he came to save. He was deserted by his own disciples. He was strung up by the proper authorities and apparently was powerless to save himself. But there's power in this because only because it was the cross that made God known to humans, accomplished salvation, defeated evil, and transforms lives and values. It's frustrating because it's almost like a stumbling block. You just can't even stomach the idea that Christ would be crucified. No, Messiah shows power. Our leaders show power. And this one has a different, a different turn It still works like this. It still feels like a stumbling block or nonsense, which is why I think, not throwing stones here, but it's why it can be easy for churches that once preached the gospel to kind of be embarrassed by a message that says, we've done wrong, all of us. Isn't it much more like, we're we're in 2019 here, isn't it much better to like appeal to people's self-image, their ego, kind of build them up a little bit. I mean, why, why preach a message that's going to say, you've got a problem between you and God? So over time, you just kind of de-emphasize the message of the cross. And maybe you still talk about God's love, which is, which is right, we should. But Paul, Paul will have none of that. He'll have none of that. Christ crucified. Paul's not going to hop on a hobby horse, some social political cause. He's going to say Christ and him crucified. That's on the agenda all times. Every worship service we have, let's sing about the cross. When we go to a wedding, we could just talk about love and the beauty of the day, but we're going to mention Christ caring for his bride by going to the cross. We come to a funeral, we could talk about what a great person the how they live their life in so many meaningful, powerful ways. But we're going to talk about the hope is not just that this was a good person, but that Christ was crucified and he's our righteousness.
Here's the reason. To those who are called, in verse 24, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God for the foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God, stronger than men. Paul won't leave this as a generic truth, so we continue to read on. And he reminds, here's, here's the next reminder he gives them. He, won't, he wants to remind them, remember God saved you through this message. It's not just an abstract message. So we've started with the message of the cross, and we've talked about how it's like that dividing line, right, between those who are perishing and those who are being saved. But, but here he goes to another place. It, it, it not only polarizes, people line up on one side or the other, and those who are perishing, those who are being saved. But Paul wants them to think a little bit more. This is not just a story, Paul says, but to the church at Corinth, and I think to the church at Town, this is your story. This is your story. And, and he starts by saying, remember where you were. Remember where you were when you were called. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise. Do you remember where you were? Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of you were noble birth. Do you remember where you were? God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low, despised even things that are not. If you're already someone who is a Christian... What were you when you were called by God to Jesus Christ? Were you on the A-list? Were you a rocket scientist? Were you just so beautiful or so wealthy or so powerful, so smart? Did you have all the access and all the power and all the privilege and all the wealth, which is why God says, why don't you come on board? Is that the way it happened? No, he says, not many were wise, not many powerful. When I, when I hear something like that, I, I think, well, my goodness, the, pa- the church that I pastor has lots of lots of smart people, intelligent people. And we're in a college town, so there's, there's PhDs, there's grad degrees. We're in an area that, where people are smart with money, where people are smart with, with science and chemistry. So is he saying, no, 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 none of those, none of those? Well, actually, I don't think that's at all what he's saying, because even in Corinth, there would be people that actually did have some social influence. They, there, there were some that had and some that didn't have much. He actually names people who seem to be influential in Corinth. So I don't think it's saying, yeah, nobody who has any sort of education or influence can ever be a part of the church. I think he's calling on us to see something different. He says, how about when you were called? When you were called. When you were called, where had any achievement gotten you? I've heard story after story of when people were called by God to Christ. I've heard stories where someone was coming off of a relationship that just blew up on them. And that got their attention. They were sensitive. I've talked to people who their life was pretty much nothing but being drunk all the time, being high all the time. Where were you when God called you? Were you just drifting along trying to make sense of it all? Were you in the party scene? Were you in high school? Was that, was that like a, the most impressive time in your life? What was it? Was it when you were dealing with the loss of someone who mattered to you. 
Maybe your story is similar to mine. So I was called by God when I was a, just a kid. I don't really remember a time where I, I didn't know things about Jesus, truth about the cross. I mean, much has been developed, but I guess there's a way where you could put that together of, oh, well, I'll tell you when the Lord called me. I was, I was just a kid with lots of potential to serve him all my days. I, I look at it totally different, differently than that. I think as I was thinking about this last night and we're around the tape of, you know, over four decades now, I thought, there's a lot that's not impressive about that. There's a lot of times where I was cold, cynical, a lot of times when I knew to do the right thing and didn't do it. A lot of times where my pride was bigger than any desire to serve the Lord. So God calls me then, even as a child, knowing, knowing however many decades I have, I'm going to be an up and down roller coaster. God calls the weak, the lowly, the despised. Remember where you were when you were called, but remember who did the choosing. Remember who did the choosing. This is, this is a word of scripture, not mine. Look at verse 27. But God chose what is foolish in the world. God chose what is weak in the world. God chose what is low and despised in the world. God chose. And it's not about us choosing God. It's not about us going, look here, God. I am pretty special. I'm pretty amazing. And if you could sign me onto your team... I'd, I'd use my talents for you. I think I'd be a, an admirable addition to your team. And as a favor to you, you should pick me. Yeah, that's never how it works. I have no leverage on God like that. None of us do. I walk in with deep insecurities. I walk in with complexities and hurt and pain and you walk in with wounds, and you walk in with abuse you've never wanted to tell anybody about. You come, even today, you come with doubts, maybe not even small stuff, like big, big stuff. You've got questions that seem logical and difficult to answer. It makes you struggle. And I I could recommend books to you. I could recommend a seminar or a talk. But actually, what I want to point to you is something much, much, much greater than that. It's God's choice to love you. It's God's choice. God did the choosing here. God's choice to demonstrate that love through Jesus going to a cross. So I can make my Christmas card picture look really, really impressive. But we all know the real story. We all know the real story. We know it's real. Why did God set it up this way? He set it up this way in verse 29 so that no human being might boast in the presence of God so that I'm not going to be up here banging my chest going, look at, look at what I've done for God. Nobody, nobody boasts in the presence of God. It gets really, really humbling. Frankly, my pride doesn't like it. I kind of want to say, that's nonsense. I've done some good things for God. But then when I face reality, something rings so true when I hear this. I know where God, I know where God chose to save me. I know my story. I know, I know what the Lord saw all the times where I would fall short. And God turned this nonsense into something I would be able to understand. The Spirit of God took this word and prepared my heart to believe. 
And because of this in verse 30, because of him, you're in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. Yeah, so that it's written, let, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. All this talk of wisdom and power and weakness and nonsense. Paul gives you a reminder, right? He says, you better remember where you came from. You better remember who did the choosing. But church, I want to I make sure we remember one other thing, and that is that God will save others through this same message. God will save others through this message. That's why Paul could say, when I came to you, I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with like these lofty, lofty speeches or wisdom. I didn't pull out the big words to show off my education. No, I had confidence in the testimony of God and the cross. He says in verse 2, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He said, so I wasn't a know-it-all. Far from that, I had actually, I decided to know nothing except this. That there really is a Jesus who is Messiah, who is the Christ. And that Messiah was nailed to a cross and put to death. Because of all that, we're on a mission. I go back even to the beginning. Because we recognize there is a, a stark dividing line between those who are perishing and those who are being saved. And that's really true. If you really thought people were perishing and what would save them is a cross, then surely it matters that people hear that from us. Surely it matters that our kids know there is a message that saves and it's not be a good kid, but it's that there is one who went to a cross for us. Surely it matters to our neighbors. Surely it matters to college students. Surely it matters to internationals. Certainly it matters to people you work with. Certainly it matters to people who attend here who are still processing through all the questions. And if it matters so much, shouldn't we do something about it? Do we remember that God will save others through this message? Paul says, I was with you in verse 3 in weakness and fear and much trembling. Well, this is some really helpful words. Paul says, my speech and my message, they weren't in all these plausible words of wisdom. Paul said, if you looked at like my body language and all that, it actually was pretty rough. So I, I was shaken. I was nervous. So he said, I don't know how I could tell others about the message of the cross because I'm just not that good at it. I'm not good at guiding discussion. I'm, not a, I'm an introvert or I'm not, I'm not good at initiating discussion. Oh, man. I'd be way too nervous. And Paul says, that's exactly what I was. I was fearful. I was full of anxiety. I was shaking when I came to you. I didn't have all the impressive words that that you might imagine. I didn't feel good at it. But my confidence was not in this great, great presentation. He says, my confidence, in verse 4, was in the fact that the Spirit of God is powerful and there would be a demonstration of the spirit and a power so that your faith wouldn't rest in but Paul really put those words together really well but it would rest in the power of God you saw God do something and it was so convincing the proof was so convincing that there was only one explanation there was one explanation God had to do this God's spirit had to be at work here This never could have been done by a a clever, slick presentation. 
It's not human wisdom that caused us to trust in Christ. It never would have been that. It had to be the powerful work of God. And when you've seen God do that, when you've seen God do that, you want him to do it more. When you've seen God do that with people from multiple continents, you say, I want to see that more. When you see God do that in lives that you would have thought, that person will never believe, it's too much like nonsense to them. You say, I want to see that more. Not human cleverness. I want to see the power of the Spirit. I want to see a demonstration of God's power. When we hear all this, I feel like the best way to end this time is by asking a few questions. And can I just ask for you to give full attention to these questions? I know we're moments away. It's easy to like kind of pack it up and kind of begin the process of moving on, getting on with the day. But can, I, can I ask you? I think it'll be spiritually beneficial if you'll just listen to a few of these questions and really seek the answers. I want to ask first, if you aren't yet a believer in Jesus Christ, can I ask you a question? How can we help you wrestle with this? I understand it's like really deep conversations. Deep questions might have been raised for you today. How can we help? I I know this, we want to. Would you reach out to us or at least someone who might be able to help you? Would you please do that? What would help you get some of these questions answered? Would you, would you let us be a part of that or, or maybe a friend that you know is a Christian? Would you let them be a part of answering through that? No, there's no pressure. It's just a, it's a big, big invitation. Second question, if, if you're a follower of Jesus, can I just ask you frankly, are you seeing yourself, your story, what matters to you through the lens of the cross? I'm asking that whether you're 15 or whether you're 85. If you claim to follow Jesus... Are you seeing your life like, okay, what wakes you up in the morning? What meets you in midday? What, what puts you to bed at night? Does, does the cross ever come up there? What can reinforce this for you? What conversations do you need to have, maybe even today, that would help reinforce the fact that what Jesus did should mean something to us all? Who could you talk to today? What meeting could you set up this afternoon? What group do you need to be a part of? Because that group, you know, that group will help point me to things like Curtis talked about today. What priorities need to change? Where do you need to repent and turn from other things that like, what, what wakes me up in the morning is this, 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 not really the cross. What, what do you need to repent of? What needs to change? Are you willing to like take a step, not just hear this and walk away unchanged? I've got a question for us as a church, and that is how can this simple message of the cross drive more of our heart for our area and more of our heart for this world? I know what can happen. We can drift into being a religious club where we, we all just kind of feel good because we know how the club goes. Instead of seeing ourselves like at a, a lifeguard station, or we're watching people who are crying out for help. We realize our church has the message of the cross. Yeah, none of us are impressive, but our church has a message that churches for hundreds of years have had, the message of the cross. How would that affect our time, even when we're here, when we've got guests all around us who maybe. The only reason why they're here is they're asking difficult questions. 
time before service, time after service. What's that going to mean when we leave here? We leave with carriers of a message. And some won't buy in, but some will. Are we going to take the message to them? Those are the questions I want us to think about today. Can we just take a moment and process those? I want to invite you to bow your head, close your eyes. We'll sing in a moment a prayer that asks the Lord to keep us from straying from this message. Oh, how grateful I am, Lord, that you softened my heart to hear this message of the cross. All praises to your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for bringing us to a point of humility to see the cross. Thank you for the way it motivates our actions. We can die to self because you've died for us. So Lord, do what no amount of sophisticated language could do. Just take a simple message and push it deep into our lives. Open eyes to who you are and what you've done. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.